Welcome to this edition of the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. On today's episode, we talk with Tomer Strolite, Slayer of Lies. Tomer has been active in the Bitcoin space since his first introduction to Bitcoin in 2013. Tomer was actively involved in fighting the block size wars and is a prominent contributor to the Bitcoin space with his podcast for the love of Bitcoin, his prolific writing on Medium, and his daily contributions on Bitcoin Twitter. Tomer spent many years in print and digital media companies in Canada and spent time on the venture side of business as well. In this fantastic discussion, we learn about Tomer's upbringing and his philosophical beliefs as a militant atheist. Ultimately, these led him to a dark time in his life, but as a newfound faith in Christianity. We talk about this journey, and of course, we talk about Bitcoin. I loved this discussion. I hope you do as well. And now a word about our sponsors. Jeter Melder LLP is more than a law firm. It is a legal team. Justin and Michael have over 30 years of experience working with different clients on different legal issues from both sides of the docket, including business disputes, constitutional rights, employment agreements, employment discrimination, local counsel, and pay issues. Jeter Melder have advocated in federal and state courts in Arkansas, California, Illinois, New Mexico, and Texas. With a unique blend of clients from doctors, fellow attorneys, tradesmen, hourly workers, the unemployed, to small businesses and Fortune 500 companies. They all have one thing in common. They believe in Jeter Melder and Jeter Melder believes in them. Give them a call at 214-699-4758 or visit them at JeterMelder.com. That's J-E-T-E-R-M-E-L-D-E-R.com. Have Jeter Melder work for you. Um, Tomer, thanks thanks for joining me today. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to know you through Twitter and, and Bitcoin. And uh, for the audience, just let's start a little with um, who you are, you know, where you grew up, uh, where you went to school and, and kind of your first beginnings into, you know, your profession and your career. Sure. Um, so I, I'm from the Toronto area. I always lived in a northern suburb, although I was born in Israel and my family moved here to Canada when I was five years old. So I had to relearn. I had to not relearn. I had to learn English. My mother tongue was Hebrew. Um, but at a relatively young age where it wasn't that hard, there was a lot of, you know, stressful assimilation when I was a little kid speaking with an accent and, uh, and not knowing any of the letters in the alphabet. Uh, it was a bit of a learning curve. Uh, but I grew up, I grew up in the Toronto area. I ended up going to university at a commuter school. I was still living at home. It was called, it is called York University. I, I did a couple of business degrees there. Uh, and my, um, my prof- professional life actually started a little bit before because it was so what if part of what shaped me so much was actually uh, the summer camp that I went to where I actually met my wife as staff over there. And so, and I, I originally taught paddle sports there, canoeing and kayaking, but eventually led a creative program of uh, the, the camp had a radio station and a video program where we made and edited videos back in the eighties, which is really cool. And, uh, and so that helped shape me as a, as someone who had to have responsibilities and figure out how to work with technologies and do creative things with those technologies and, deliver on deadlines because we would have these big video productions that we would do f- four times a summer. And, um, and so that was, that was, that was a little bit of what shaped me. I ended up in business <coughs> because I did two back to back business degrees. I ended up majoring in nearly everything one can major in, in mm-hmm. a business school. I took enough courses to have a major in, 
economics and marketing and strategy and management information systems and in finance. So I, I have enough to make a claim that I have majors in all of those uh, disciplines, but dated. It was in the mid 90s that I uh, received those degrees. And uh, I wanted to work uh, in something to do with computers at the time, because this, this was like 93, 94 when I was graduating and Windows 3.0 was out and it was really exciting. Uh, you could you had all this, what you see is what you get, ability mm -hmm. to format things and make things look beautiful and Excel existed and Microsoft Word existed. And these were really exciting times. And I ended up getting a job at a startup at the time. This was before startups were really a big thing. And uh, the entrepreneur behind it wanted to do something with respect to multimedia because this was actually before the internet was a thing. Um, and so see, people had these CD-ROMs hooked up to their computer mm -hmm. and even getting those things running was hard. It was because they were external things and you had to set interrupt switches on your computer and install cards in the motherboard. It was really complicated stuff, but we wanted to be on the leading edge. And so, and we ended up actually starting to form a, um, an, the first CD-ROM based magazine. And so we had built a whole publishing platform um and uh and it was going it was going well uh we had a couple of interested major companies if davis and disney were both interested in acquiring the company but negotiations with the entrepreneur fell apart and uh, my trust and confidence in in that entrepreneur also fell apart with, with that i ended up looking for another job um and i was offered one by the toronto star which was the largest newspaper in the country and the local newspaper and uh, what what they wanted was this was again before the internet. They were going to be launching a website, and they wanted someone with a business degree who had used the internet. And again, this was really <laughs> rare in those days. I had a couple of years of experience playing around on the internet. The World Wide Web itself was really only a year old at the time in terms of any uh, in terms of like the Mosaic browser, the, the graphical user interface that had been released for it. So I joined, and I ended up with a 16-year career at that company. Eventually, uh, and a couple of times in, in that point. Um, ran the digital department but my last seven years there was i'd started a division that was focused exclusively on building digital businesses not on the print side of the of the company which i had a lot of experience in but this was just the digital side and grew it into a portfolio of about 10 or 11 different companies some of which were quite successful all of which ended up many of which were partnerships with other companies all of which had their own unique structure with with their own presidents or their own their own leaders their own directors and uh and that that kind of took me to a pretty I, I don't know how far into my career you want me to go but uh, th that that was that was probably the climax in terms of my career as a corporate person i would have been 42 at the time that 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 ended and it ended with me leaving after the CEO of the company had been replaced by another CEO of the company that I no longer saw eye to eye with and felt that I couldn't be happy there any longer. So I, uh, the, from the, from the history and, and that was, that was fantastic. It, it sounds like your, your area of expertise was definitely uh, migrated into digital uh, platforms and, and internet media and internet media company. Um, or internet media expertise, and just in listening to your your educational background, I didn't know this about, and maybe you've mentioned it before in our interactions. But economics do, uh, as we start moving into our discussion about Bitcoin and reflecting back on what you've what you learned in economics, 
I know uh, now, based on um, the economics of Bitcoin, it's kind of diametrically opposed to probably what you had learned. But do you think that your studies in economics hindered or delayed your entry into Bitcoin at all? Oh, no. I, my, what I learned in studying economics was that economics was a pile of horse manure. Just to uh, right, like I saw it from the very outset, very beginning. The, okay, from the not, not microeconomics, the Adam Smith, the law of supply and demand, all of that made sense. But as soon as we shifted into macroeconomics and we started playing uh, shell games of saying, mm-hmm. "Oh, well, if you take money from people and you spend and you force it to spend, the economy is better overall." I knew that there was like I, I couldn't figure out all the lies, but I could see them in the math. The math, the math simply didn't work out. It was a recursive was a recursive function that I stole stole from one stole from one variable to add to the very same variable, and so there was just, there was a flaw in the mathematics of Keynesianism from the very outset. And it was taught to me enough times that I could see, you know, I knew what to do to get the right answer on the exams, but mm. I, knew, I knew also it, it had no correspondence to reality. So. Um, and, and it was unique in the disciplines of business school. Like, it, not all were sciences, but finance was a very disciplined, mathematically rigorous, and generally sound discipline. It too wandered off into the like when you tried to financially model the entire economy with six variables. It was obviously mm-hmm. sure in the same realm of <laughs> realm of fantasy as economics. But it, it, but at least it was pushing in the honest direction. It didn't have a lie. In, it was just like it's too complicated to model the whole thing. So we're trying to model something. Uh, but with, with macroeconomics, I really felt that the, the thing was a dishonest pursuit from the very outset. It was a attempt to rationalize actions that certain people wanted to take with claimed benefits. But it was clear to me that these benefits weren't, weren't real. It was just, it was a mathematical shell game. Uh, so when I when I eventually came across Bitcoin, I know we'll talk about this later. I, I wasn't I wasn't oh, but this violates Keynesian principles. <laughs> it was like I, it was like I never, thank God I found this <laughs> right. Yeah, there's yeah. something very real here and worthy of study because so much of my study of economics and you know I also had I guess the fort I would say the misfortune, but the fortune of having terrible economics professors who weren't particularly skilled liars and weren't particularly good at even writing exams, and so they're their laziness mm. and their, their lack of grasp of the topic stood out against the other disciplines. Mm. Pardon me, I'm just going to clear my throat. Uh, it stood out against the other disciplines where the professors were really disciplined. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they really knew their material. They had theses and they were generally honest about what they knew and what they didn't know. They said, you know, I hold this view about marketing. I hold this view about consumer behavior. There are other people who disagree with it. Like th- that's a very honest take. Uh, and, and it sets a student up for saying, well, you know, someone's about to tell me something that they believe, but they know may have, uh, may not, may be incomplete and probably is incomplete. And so that, that's a really nice way for a teacher, I think, to present material that is con- is controversial, rather than as you know as unalterable truth as 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 comes from on high, in, sure. as they, as it did in economics quite often. It's interesting because I uh, Saifedean uh, Moose uh, tweeted a couple of weeks ago a quote from uh, Keynes about his. Um, praising of how the Bank of England um, basically manipulated or lied to the public uh, to help fund the, the second or the First World War. Uh, and I, I had written about that, that 
you know, it, it's unconscionable that the man that we have based our entire economic system on, I mean, the beginnings of his career were based on a lie. He, he perpetrated, you know, a, a giant lie. Uh, yeah. And, you know, having never studied economics before to see that uh, was just very eye opening. So that's that's interesting. That you you picked up on. So I, I've learned about the lies of economics just experientially. And, and you picked up on it immediately upon learning upon it. So that that's that's quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, do Given your experience in the in the digital realm and the internet, um, were you looking for a digital cash? Uh, was that something that you had even conceived of, or or not? No, I, I hadn't. The, my uh, my first run in with Bitcoin, I was it, it was after this this stage in my career that I've given you the update on. I, I was now working in private equity for uh for a large financial firm in canada which also happened to own a media company i mean canada's canada's big companies tend to be very diversified and they tend to own assets like media assets for um for reasons other than just the return on investment for for having a voice and being able to continue their political uh will and this was a company with a very good a very good political will they wanted to keep the country unified um and uh, so I was doing I was doing private equity, and I used to get like tons of pitches of new companies all the time. And I I had a joke, which I don't know if I've ever shared with you before. When people would present me their business plan or their PowerPoint and say, "What do you think this business is worth?" I would joke with them, and I would say, "Well, somewhere between zero and all the money in the world." Yeah, and they, right. they would of course be they would of course be disappointed with that estimate. It was a <laughs> but it was it, it was very accurate. Yeah. and um, and I had been introduced to Bitcoin. This was now been in like. 2013 mid 2013 after the first big bubble that occurred in 2013 and uh and i someone told me about it from from a philosophical background not from a pitching a business idea background and i read the white paper and i immediately said to myself oh my god this is either going to be worth nothing or it's going to be all the money in the world Mm. and it just kind of it resonated really really deeply and i said i have to study this thing to really, really, really understand it because this this is not to be dismissed. And it did bring back immediately um, all these all these things that ultimately accumulated to my wanting to leave what had been a really good career, which was all the money printing of the 2008 situation. A lot of those things ended up impacting me personally. in just in a sense as a sense of injustice like I, I was working so hard with so many of my colleagues who were themselves working so hard to build businesses that mm-hmm. provided value for our customers and we were trying to do this great work for our customers and we were trying to find great suppliers so that we could collaborate with them to put these packages together for customers and then 2008 came and you know the banks the banks had demonstrated that they had done a terrible job of taking care of their customers. They had loaned them huge sums of money for things that weren't worth much and, you know, and, and were set to have bankrupted those people, their customers and bankrupted themselves. And they got, and they got off scot-free money was printed. The rest of us paid. And it was just such a huge sum of money at the time. It's even small by today's standards, but it was $800 billion Mm -hmm. got given, you know, and for all the work that I was doing, I was like, we, I was so proud. We we were like approaching two hundred million dollars in revenue, and we were doing like 
13 million dollars in profit and it felt like so much work to get so far and then and then to be to have that treated as a drop in the ocean mm -hmm. of, of injustice of 800 billion dollars which makes 16 million dollars look so tiny so puny uh, that, that was, in a sense, really demoralizing. And a number of different things happened, including what led to the CEO of the company leaving, who, who left with more money than you know, my career was going to earn uh, for the thing. Just a lot of stuff felt unjust. And then, and then on top of that, other things came in. So I, I, I had a real, um, I had a real, what, what's the uh, crisis of, of belief? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's, that's really well put. A crisis of belief in the system. You know, I, I had come to this company. I was nervous about it initially, like 16 years prior, but they treated me well. They hired really good people in general. When, the, when they did hire from outside, the people at the very top seemed to have integrity and honesty. And then it, it, it kind of in a couple of, a couple of things, the whole system, the, the curtains got pulled away and I could see that there was corruption in there and that integrity wasn't really a big part of it and i do think that's one of the things when i first saw bitcoin i said you know this is reliable nobody can change the rules and the more i studied it the more i became convinced of that and of course nobody can change the rules of math so it would have to be somebody corrupting the rules of the system itself if it was going to get corrupted and uh and i went through a bunch of stuff and i'm sure some of your other questions will take us there but uh just in terms of the introduction to bitcoin i first read it and i so i immediately fell down what we call the rabbit hole and i just started studying non-stop anything i could get my hands on back in 2013 it was really early there wasn't there weren't books mm -hmm. like uh, mm -hmm. the the bitcoin standard so you to learn about it you had to read uh, endless posts on news groups uh, and forums and there had just then um i think it was probably in early 2014 early 2013 princeton had put out some course on bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies but there were very few at the time like ethereum didn't exist for example um, and so it was very early and it was a very detailed course about how proof of work works and how the blockchain works and what a secure hash algorithm it was a very detailed dive into the technologies, which was, um, it was just invaluable to me because I, I was able to take that course and really learn everything about the mecha the mechanics of Bitcoin. That's obviously not everything about Bitcoin. I'd say mm -hmm. when people ask how, you know, where are you on a scale of one to 10? I say, well, if it's a logarithmic scale where everything mm -hmm. like the Richter course, at Richter scale, I'm probably at a three mm -hmm. um, because it's just there's so much that emerges from the effects of, of Bitcoin, um, of Bitcoin's operations. But I learned about the mechanics which operate it, and I still get lots and lots of questions. And I realize very, very few people understand even the, even what the building blocks are, let alone what was built out of the building blocks of Bitcoin. You're, uh, so if you uh, approached it first or started learning about it first in 2013, when did you actually kind of make your first purchase or take the deep dive, so to speak? Oh, right away. Like oh, I, I, looked, I looked okay. right away. I, I didn't wait to be convinced. I, I tried to immediately get some money it, it, and and kind of like today, th there were things rising and falling and disappearing and getting shut down. So I tried of course, the easiest thing that I could think of was, well, where do I give my credit card and get some Bitcoin? And mm -hmm. there were, there were, you know, Bitcoins were like three to $600 at the time. There was a lot of volatility wow. in very short yeah. periods of time. Um, you know, it's like, oh my God, it doubled one day. It fell by mm -hmm. half the next. Um, but I managed to get my hand on one Bitcoin because that was kind of the limit that this one credit card company had. And I wanted to buy more, but they got shut down for whatever reason. Well, I ended up uh, finally 
through some local source, which was probably local Bitcoins, but I actually don't remember, uh, meeting a guy in a coffee shop with an envelope full of money that I'd gotten from the bank earlier in the day and, and my, and the, my laptop, which is still, <laughs> still this laptop, although the coins aren't on it anymore because they've moved many times and handing him an envelope with cash and him sending me the Bitcoins that had Wi-Fi at this coffee shop. And fantastic. I watched, wow. I watched the yeah. Bitcoins appear. I watched the first confirmation. I think the second confirmation and that person left after two or three confirmations. They weren't going to sit around for forever. They had their, they had their money and I clearly had my Bitcoins, but I stayed there and watched until there were six confirmations. Cause that's what everyone said was the, the way that you knew it. And then I had, I had my first little stash of Bitcoins. That's, wow. That's fantastic. That's, the, that's really cool. Um, tell us, uh, a little bit, you know, our interaction is, has been kind of, uh, a faith-based interaction. Um, tell us a little bit about your faith experience growing up and into adulthood, or, you know, if you didn't have any faith, ex- I, I know you're Jewish by heritage right. and, you know, what religion or philosophical beliefs did you pursue and what guided you to those beliefs? Yeah. So most of my life, I was very secular. I didn't give much thought to religion. I was born Jewish. So I I practiced Jewish, cust- Jewish customs and traditions, um, not out of, and I didn't really believe in God or think much about God, um, much about religion. My father had made comments when I was young that his father was didn't believe in God. And so I just assumed, you know, you just take so many things from your dad if you're a man, mm-hmm. if you're a boy. I just assumed, I guess I don't believe in God either. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that was that was kind of the naive, childish uh, view view of it. And uh, and so that, that really kind of took me through much of my life until <laughs> until I became um, serious about philosophy. And for me, the turning, I was always philosophical and I read a lot of stuff, but I didn't have a lot of integration around it. And I was very focused on business. And, and to me, business stress, if you say, what was your, what was your um, most studied subject? Business strategy was really the thing that I fell in love with. And I had great mentors and tutors in business strategy. And it was a field that was philosophical and it shaped the world, like what companies succeeded and how they succeeded and what they had to do. I I wouldn't, you know, I've never thought about it this way. That was kind of, you know, my philosophy or my religion Mm -hmm. from the time I was um, my mid, early, early to mid thirties, probably where I really bore down on studying something and wanting to know it deep, really, really deeply. But I, I, I then stumbled across philosophy itself. I read um, I read Ayn Rand's book, The Fountainhead, and it's a story of. An- you stumbled across it, or did something kind of push you in that direction? Was there a longing, or a? I'd heard about it many times, and I, I always, you know, I I didn't take uh, English literature. I loved lit- I loved literature, and so in my I read lots of classic books in my free time in in my summers when I had summer jobs in between school business school was very intense so it was very hard to find any kind of time for uh for other reasons but i tried to read all the classics of english literature or even the translated works from other authors as part of one they just enriched my soul uh some of them really made me aware of the world around me through fiction like books like 1984 and um and brave new world for example um and i'd heard of the fountainhead a number of times but I'd never, I'd never really come across it, and uh, and I finally found an opportunity to to experience it when I was, 
I want to say maybe 33 years old or something. I was at the time I was I hadn't yet started this digital division that I mentioned. I was actually running corporate development for the the, the parent corporation of the newspaper, which was a head office job, and it was it was I was head of strategy for the company at a really young age, uh, which was really exciting and it was really aligned with what I told you I was passionate about. But I I read this um, I read this book and it it was. It, it seized my spirit, my mm. spirit. It's a story. It's a story of an independent thinking architect, a, a man who wants to be an architect, but doesn't get to practice because it, the industry is so steeped in tradition that anyone with any original ideas is ostracized. And I, I really connected to that uh, in a lot of powerful ways, especially since I was advocating for the creation of a digital division within a newspaper company that was steeped in tradition. Uh, there was a lot of, sure. there's a lot of powerful connection, but I think anybody who want anybody who's the book is ultimately about independence, independence of thought, independence of action and, and thinking for oneself in the face of lots of people who will tell you not to think for yourself, that all the questions have already been answered and that tradition has all the correct answers. That's maybe like kind of the, this, the big theme of, of the novel. And, uh, and so I was really moved by it. And I read the, the other very famous book that, that Ayn Rand authored called Atlas Shrugged, mm -hmm. which, um, which, ha which is known generally for people who haven't even read it or heard anything about it. It's the second most cited book after the Bible for saying people, for people saying it changed my life or mm -hmm. had the biggest impact on me. So it had a huge impact on me as well. And, and one of the impacts it had on me was it made me very clear about my atheism um, because it is, while, while the book itself isn't about religion, it is, it's a very thick book and it, it and it's all through literature. So it's all done through uh, the creation of characters and plot and structures really projects how men are responsible for using their mind to create the world that they live in. It's all accountable, and it, and while it does say that the universe is benevolent, that it's not out to harm you, it says basically nature is all there is, and you've got to figure out nature in order to command it and create things from it. And it's it's wonderful free thinkers who manage to invent things like the cyclotron and the automobile and the railroad and the airplane. And so it's upon us as human beings to know reality and to master it for the benefit of ourselves. And, and ultimately others, but it says, it's very clear, it says, no man shall live his life for the sake of another man. That's a quote directly from the book. And um, and I was I was struck with this philosophy. I ended up studying so much about it because there were, there, it, it wasn't just those two novels. She had written many essays and she had had students who had, um, who had asked her many questions and formulated the philosophy into an actual, but there's an actually a book called Objectivism, the philosophy mm -hmm. of Ayn Rand that's been mm -hmm. written by it. And, and this really occupied a lot of my thinking. I, I handed out many copies of her books to employees of mine. And when I finally left the company, I remember people were, were giving me a very lovely send off. There was a big party that they held and, um, and people did some presentations and almost every single one of the presentations cited my, uh, affinity for Ayn Rand and, and her philosophy of objectivism. And, uh, and so that, that was really very much of a big defining 
characteristic of my personality. It's a it's a very comprehensive philosophy. It's not just a philosophy of economics or a philosophy of morality. It's a philosophy that encompasses metaphysics, which is what the nature of the universe is, epistemology, how we know it, ethics, what the mm -hmm. proper moral code for human beings are, politics, how human beings should interact with other human beings, and even to some degree aesthetics, which is the whole field of art. Um, so it's a very expansive uh, philosophy. Some parts of it are quite small. Metaphysics, for example, the universe is right, <laughs> and and there's no god, and there's like don't don't right, and and it just is, and it follows the laws of logic and order, and that's what it is. And then the epistemology is this vast, vast topic about how we know and what concepts are. Really fascinating stuff. So that's um, so that's really was a very big part of me and guided me in decision making and. And how I saw the world. How I saw the world. Like she has one great essay called "Philosophy Who Needs It," in which she points out everybody has a philosophy, whether mm -hmm. you, mean, mm -hmm. you have one or not. You have a you have a philosophy, and if it's a bad one, you'll die <laughs> because you will make bad decisions that will uh, that will not correspond with you staying alive for very long. Well, thank you for that, um, and we're. I think we're going to circle back with that. Um, mm. The in your in your process of kind of exploring Bitcoin, and I know you've, you've written extensively about it, you've got some great essays on Medium. Um, what, what have you learned about Bitcoin or what has Bitcoin taught you? And then what I wanna do is I wanna tie that back into your philosophy of life, the objectivism, mm -hmm. and there, um, there seems like there was a another crisis in belief that kind of joined us together. So if you could kind of yeah. talk about Bitcoin and what it taught you and right. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is a really big question. Um, I, I think I, so I like, I've spent eight years studying Bitcoin, advocating for it, spreading the word, <laughs> spreading the word of it, fighting for it. Uh, there, there was a period in 2017 that is now referred to as the block size wars or the fork wars. Mm -hmm. And I fought, I fought in that war. F fighting didn't mean getting a musket and standing on a hill and shooting at other people. It meant writing essays and persuading other people and running certain types of software to determine the fate of Bitcoin. And ultimately, that was something that was very exhausting and led to some adding to the already stressful situation that I found myself living in. But ultimately, Bitcoin was victorious. Unlike the previous uh, experiences I'd had where people who deserved to have lost all their money, to have bankrupted themselves because they did bankrupt themselves, were rewarded for bankrupting themselves at the expense of those who had behaved mm. responsibly. In Bitcoin, I actually saw a moral victory. Mm. The, the people who fought for integrity won against all the compromises of integrity, who were the same types of people who won the, in the previous instance. I, and I hadn't quite connected it that way, but at that point in time, I knew I was wedded to Bitcoin for a very long time, as long as it could do this, because it would, here it was, it was this instrument that gave those of us who fought for integrity and honesty an opportunity to defeat otherwise very powerful forces, because we had, we had these laws on our side that were inviolable and we ended up beating the bad guys so it was it was really um it was it was really powerful and um but having said that i was i was still suffering from mental illness uh you know, having lot having left the job that i had i also had 
uh, loss of a family member, my dad to suicide that came on after a stroke. It was very so sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. It was, it, and it was like, a, I felt very ashamed of it. Um, and, um, and, it just, it all felt terrible. And I, and various things happened that made me not feel um, important in this world anymore. I, we had actually had enough money that um, my family didn't need me to be the provider in terms of the breadwinner. I didn't have this career that gave me all this satisfaction any longer. I had this situation where I didn't have that pride in my family and the heritage of my family anymore. And so I felt very lost and empty. Mm. Uh, and I felt that way for years. And, um, and I was no longer, and, and the drive that objectivism had given me while I was an entrepreneur and intrapreneur in a company building, building things wasn't giving me that drive. And I saw that other people who followed the philosophy of objectivism around me weren't much better off. Mm. Um, it just seemed like, they were waiting for something and, and bitcoin was the one thing that drove me um it was still this fight for taking over all the money in the world through a just money system where anyone in the world could participate it wasn't just for the privileged class the rules weren't set by any particular privileged class so it was a it was a worthy fight um but i was i was kind of lost and um and it looked like it might be that way for the rest of my life um, I was just getting kind of getting around to accepting it after having been to a psychotherapist and mm. her helping me manage my anxiety and manage my depression. But there was still there was still a, a cloak of it over me. And um, and then a, a friend of mine who confided in me that his mother was I think he knew that my father had committed suicide. He confronted he, he told me that. Um, his mother was suffering from tremendous depression and he was trying to get her treatments and he shared with me a book called how to change your mind by an author named michael pollan that was a revisitation a re-exploration of the role that psychedelic medicines uh, had played in psychotherapy before they became recreation recreational drugs and ultimately mm -hmm. outlawed mm -hmm. and it, it was really uh, going back to, to the history of psychedelics before before they became hippie drugs when they were actually psychiatric medicines mm -hmm. and and how it turned out these things help people and he went through his own journey his his journey climaxed with or his journey comes back around to my journey when he actually becomes certified to administer uh this type of treatment and i agree to say you know what i've got nothing to lose it's not dangerous it's a day of my time i'll take a i'll take a treatment in a supervised manner this doesn't go take go take some party drugs and go sure, yeah. go to some party this is uh this is in a supervised environment where your comfort is set where people are monitoring you where you set expectations and goals and everything else uh to take one of these medicines and and experience the outcome and lo and behold it was there's studies now that back this up but it, i there was a, a dose i took of uh mdma and it kicked in and within a couple of hours i i had managed to sort out for myself all the things that were causing me stress and mm. anxiety and depression and discard them from my life it was really really a remarkable experience and, and i would say it, it's hard it's hard to believe just hearing that but say there's studies now that demonstrate that like two-thirds of 
uh, veterans suffering for, if I have this correct, two thirds of veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which is more severe than I'm sure what I went mm -hmm. through after just one treatment of MDMA, never need any further treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder again. Wow. So that's just how profoundly yeah. impactful this medicine is, as opposed to a lifetime of taking SSRIs. Mm -hmm. One treatment once of this one drug seems to resolve things for, um, for those people. So, so that, that was, that really started a new chapter in my life. Um, it was a chapter where I was no longer drearily moping about, you know, thinking that the best of my life had passed me by. And Homer, when, when was that? How long ago was that? It was less than a year ago. Okay. It was, it's coming up on a year, but it's, and it's what, less than a year. But if you had been since 2017 had been kind of in this downward oh, since spiral. 2012. Since 2012, I'd been. Okay. All right. So but you mentioned the block size wars. So I was yeah. kind of referencing that. I guess that was the yeah. conclusion of the block size wars. But, um, and it was just happenstance that your friend had recommended this treatment. Is that what brought you to that or? Well, we, that, that would certainly have been my view as an atheist at the time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Coincidence just happened, you know? Well, so what, you know, from, from that, that treatment and, um, it seems like at least based on, you know, looking at your medium page, a lot of your writings kind of flowed after that. Is that, is that a true statement? That's correct. That's correct. I actually, I then had a, I had a subsequent treatment in February. I had been writing a little bit, um, after that I was starting to get my energy, but I had, um, I had another treatment that I wanted to do in February. I, I and I was, and I wanted to ask the treatment this time, like, help me understand this passion that I've had for Bitcoin for all this time. Now that I no longer have this hangover of thinking that I'm worthless and that mm. my family doesn't love me. And like, these were all, these were all issues that were resolved yeah. the first time. They were deep, deep issues. But now that I had, didn't have that as a obstacle anymore, I wanted to understand a little bit better what it is it's, that drives my, um, my enthusiasm for Bitcoin so much. And, and that was in February of, of this year. And you'll, you'll see, and, and during that, um, that session, I, I, I managed to really understand a lot more about, about Bitcoin. And, and I think I had probably my first religious experience of my life during that moment. I, I was visited by something I saw a lovely, fatherly, beautiful thing. Um, and it was so gentle and it was so tender and it was so kind. And I didn't identify it as anything necessarily religious at the time, but it was beautiful and it was, it left a feeling in me that I'll, that I'll never forget. And when, when the whole thing was said and done, I realized I wanted to be a writer and I'd mm. always been, a, I'd always been good at writing. And I, I remember, um, I remember like in grade seven or grade eight, I was, I, I think in grade eight, we, we, we had a great class. I was, I was put into an enriched class cause I had scored high on an IQ test. Wasn't quite gifted, but I was enriched and, and our homeroom teacher was a librarian and he just had us read, read, read. like we had to read a book a week. He didn't force any particular books down mm. our throat. So you just pick a book and read it. And, I, and so we read like, in that one school year, we probably each read 30 to 40 books. Fantastic. And, yeah. um, and I, and I remember one assignment, there was one book that was an assigned book. It was a science fiction book. And, uh, one of the assignments to was write another chapter in this book. Um, and so I ended up writing a chapter and I remember, I remember being quite proud of the chapter that I wrote, but I never pursued writing beyond, beyond that, but it always left inside of me. It's like, maybe I could be a science fiction writer someday. 
And it was kind of, and I wrote lovely memos when I was a professional and I wrote really good, really good letters and really good presentations and things like that. Um, and I, and I was, you probably didn't like the, you probably didn't like the advent of email. Uh, you know, I used to back, if you remember the Blackberry, which had a full keyboard on it. Uh So this was in the days before I, I, because the keys were tactile and you could feel Mm -hmm. them. So I used to be able to drive, (laughs) drive while, while Mm -hmm. typing like 2000 word emails. And, uh, and, and, and the day that the iPhone came out, everybody in the, in the company thanked me because they stopped getting these 2000 word emails. Mm-hmm. You couldn't, you couldn't yeah. do that any longer with a non-tactile keyboard. Interesting. Yeah. But I became, I became quite skilled at, at writing even, even on, on the Blackberry. So I used to write very long, I used to write very long emails actually is, is, is my reaction to it. But you somewhere you, you, you write long texts. Yeah. <laughs> I write very long texts. <laughs> So there, there you have it. Um, I just, um, I'm, I, there's a, there's a part of me that writes. Yeah, puts of my course. Yeah. In, in writing. And so after this, um, after this experience, I just, I didn't know exactly where it came from. I didn't, it was, but I knew I wanted to write and I knew I wanted to write about Bitcoin principally because I had spent eight years studying this topic and something exciting was happening. This is all before the lockdowns, by the way, right? This is February, so we hadn't, we'd kind of heard a little bit about coronavirus if we were studying, but it was just something, there was something going on in China. And, uh, and so I came back home and told my wife, I want to be a writer now. And she said, okay. And, you know, she's, there was just something, I guess, that felt natural to her about it. And there was no, like, there was no, like, well, how are you going to make money doing this? Or, uh, you know, what, what does this mean? It was just, okay. If you want to be a writer, you can be a writer. Um, she didn't even roll her eyes. It wasn't like, oh, okay, you're going to be a writer. It was, it was okay. Um, be that. And I started, um, I, I, I started looking for something to write. I'd been writing essays every now and then as had inspired me. And yeah, as you said, if you look at my medium, you can start to see that there's some writings leading up to February. But um, now I knew what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about Bitcoin and I wanted to, I wanted to explain all these different things and I wanted to impress, like there was an ego part of this to me as well that I have to confess. Um, I wanted to impress other Bitcoiners mm-hmm. um, who, who I was, who I admired. I wanted to say, look, I can come here and I can say something that you haven't thought of before that mm-hmm. is intelligent. And uh, I ended up, I ended up in a couple of telegram groups and uh, I ended up getting advice on one piece that I wrote where somebody said, you know, you should take Simon Sinek's advice and say, like, why are you writing this, right? Like, I, I, you've written this whole essay and I'm reading it and it's interesting, but I don't know why I'm reading it. Oh, my um, goodness. Okay. Wow. And so it was like, that was really good advice. And I said, and so I went to one of these groups. I said, I'm going to write a series called Why Bitcoin? I'm going to answer all these why questions that people have about Bitcoin. What are some of your questions? And I didn't, I got a response, which I didn't expect was everyone in the group or a lot of people in the group were like, yes, write something to answer this question, that question. And I think in like 30 minutes, um, I had over a hundred suggestions of articles. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so I stepped back and I said, well, what am I really good at? I'm really good at getting to the, we've, we've actually joked about the opposite. <laughs> we, we joked that I, I write a lot, but I'm actually, I was, I'm very good at when space is tight or time is tight, writing something that gets the point right across. And so I committed to myself to do this, to answer these questions that many people had, why, why certain things about Bitcoin in 
three minute reads, three to four minutes, really short, like in, for the Twitter age. So, because mm -hmm. there were already so many writers in Bitcoin who wrote these mm -hmm. 5,000 word, 10,000 word essays. I'm going to try to reach people in 500 words, I, I said. And to still stroke my own ego, I'm going to, I'm going to make this so that it'll impress the people who, who admire, who I admire, mm -hmm. I got to have something, mm -hmm. I'm going to say something original. I'm not just going to simple, I'm not going to dumb down some very smart things into 500 words. I'm going to try to say something new and smart mm -hmm. in 500 words. And I now had a list of a hundred topics. So, so I took a list of a hundred topics and I, and the next day I sat down at the computer in the morning and I picked one of them and I started writing and nothing, there wasn't a magic. It wasn't there. I, I wasn't, I wasn't dejected. I wasn't disappointed or distressed. I said, it's not, it's not working for me today. I got up and I left and I, and I basically kind of forgot about it for the rest of the day. And I went to bed that night and that night at 3am in the morning, I woke up and in my sleep, the first article had come to me and it was an article that I ended up calling why choose Bitcoin and became the first, and I don't think it was one of the list of 100 topics. And it was this big integration that I could say in 500 words, which is you should choose it because Bitcoin needs to earn your choice. The dollar doesn't ask for your permission. It doesn't ask you to choose it. Gold can't earn your choice. Gold can't change. It's inert. It's unchanging. Bitcoin needs every single person who in the world who's going to use it to choose it. And it can change and improve. And that's the reason. It's not lots of other articles about why Bitcoin's good money existed. And it would, they were like these litanies of, well, it's divisible, it's fungible, it's tradable, it's transactable. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like all this long list of stuff that causes people heads to spin. I just came up with a simple integration and said, because it needs to earn your choice and, and it will. And, and the more people's choice it earns, the more valuable it is. And so the more likely it is to earn your choice. And I managed to get, I, I typed it into a Google doc on my phone and my bedside. And then the next morning I edited it and I published it and I shared it in these groups and people were like, wow, that's really awesome. That's really good. And, uh, and I kept having then these subsequent insights of, and writing about topics that in, in just 500 words or so that nobody else had written about what the second one was why Bitcoin's rules are enforced by physics. Uh, as opposed to anything else. And there was a really clever analogy I had about why German cars are faster and safer. It's because mm -hmm. they don't I've have read that paper, they, yeah. Yeah. They don't have they don't have speed limits. They mm -hmm. don't have rules. And because they don't have rules, they have to <laughs> they get better. Um and the, the rules I said the rules yeah. are the laws of physics, right? That was a great That's insight. How, yeah, when I read that paper, that was fantastic. Yeah. And so there there were just more and more and more of these that were coming to me. And some I didn't think terribly highly of, but I still wrote them because they they came from somewhere. Like there was one where I called Bitcoin the new frontier. I thought that was maybe a bit of an under, you know, but I, I, I was able to say Bitcoin welcomes people. I, I, I cited the portion of the poem of the new Colossus from the foot of the Statue of Liberty, where it says, bring me your mm -hmm. tired, uh, hungry masses. And because Bitcoin lets everybody come in, Bitcoin has, uh, it's, you can no longer get into America. It's a very hard place to get into. So th that po poem doesn't ring true anymore, but it does in Bitcoin. And I describe Bitcoin as this new frontier. And I didn't think it was a particularly strong article, but when people read it, many Bitcoiners came and said, yes, this is why I'm here. I'm here mm. to explore the new frontier, to build the new frontier. It's a safe place. And, and, People said, oh, "This is there's a meme in the Bitcoin community that says, well, I was born too late to explore the earth, mm -hmm. uh, too, soon, mm -hmm. too, too soon to explore the stars, but just in time to fix the money. It's something like that. And that, and that really is the timing of, uh, of this point in history. So, 
So I, that's what got me to writing. I ended up writing the series. A bunch of other positive things happened to me, and and now I can't stop. <laughs> I stuck to that's fantastic. Me. I'm. I mean, just as someone who's kind of recently gone way down the the rabbit hole. I mean, I, I first got into Bitcoin in 2018, but just really started going down this past you know six to eight months. Um, it is intimidating to to write something original in the Bitcoin space, and you know that's kind of where my my faith kind of came in. And as I started thinking about you know the truths of Bitcoin, and that's really kind of how we met. I, I guess um, I started writing because what I saw was a an ethos or a, a worldview around Bitcoin. And I, like you, I mean, I, I saw the truths within Bitcoin, but I have a, I had a Christian worldview uh, frame of reference. And my thinking was, you know, if, if we are on the left tail of the Bitcoin adoption cycle, um, we have a lot more people to kind of bring into the fold. And I was looking at it from a purely evangelistic point of view that if we can use Bitcoin as a teaching tool to point people to, to Jesus, then um, I want to be on that left side of the adoption curve. And, and so I started writing. And then I think you followed me on Medium. I, I don't remember the exact. Um, it was just it, I'll just say for the audience, um, this was a supernatural um, meeting between Tom or me. No, no question about it. Yeah, no, there's no, I can't remember how I came across your first article. You, like you didn't, you hadn't uh, cited me in it. And it was right before another treatment that I had. Um, and, uh, and I read your article and it made me think, it made me think something, there's something here that's really important to me. And I, I, I and I've been an atheist all my life and probably will be for the rest of my life. But uh there's just there's there's so much going on in the world right now. It's hard, it's hard to cling to the atheism um, any any longer. There just seems to be so many pointers. And and I came across your article, and your article talked about um, I can't even remember exactly what it talked about, but it caused me to ask my therapist, my guide, if if they believed in Jesus before I did my treatment. And they said they did, and they had an experience where Jesus came to them. And uh, and I, I and I went and. Um, did my treatment and and, I, and so and so sorry just the supernatural thing so I, I i read your article and i and i saw you had zero followers on medium at that point in time and i'm like this is too good and i saw you had four articles so i, I read another one at least maybe i read two two of the four that you had published at the time and i'm like this is really good even though i'm coming at it from an atheist's point of view it's not it's not this uh, it's not this kind of dismissible talk about religion it first of all grounds everything in really sound facts and logic and moral philosophy and, and then talks about religion as being aligned with that so i followed you and i think within 15 minutes of me following you it, it was a very short period of time it could have been a half an hour but it was you published another story in which you actually had tagged me mm -hmm. and so I, I see you tag it was like we were crossing paths and mm -hmm. this is this was the supernatural meeting you you were working on an article that was citing me but i'd already somehow discovered you and i cannot for the life of me remember how it was that i came across. it could have just been the algorithm on medium it said here's an article and something about the title i think you had a title in there that had reason or rationality or something mm -hmm. and that that was the hook that got me to bite and uh and, and so we both kind of uh found each other there. And I did this other therapy session and, and miracles were revealed to me. And, 
and the, the, the existence of miraculous forces that are benevolent and good in the world became crystal clear to me. And I, I just couldn't deny them anymore. Right. I, I said, I said to my therapist, like we witnessed a miracle yesterday. This was the day after, and I could reason it away. I could pretend that what we witnessed wasn't a miracle, but I'd be lying if I, if I wasn't. And, and one of the revelations to me was just, it's, you don't have to know the answer to everything. You just have to let go of what you don't know. You know, don't insist that you know what you don't know. That was one of the realizations that I came to. If you want to pursue the truth, let go of your lie. Your lie is a trap. Your lie is a chain. It holds you in place. It prevents you from moving forward. I, I got to let go of the lie that there aren't supernatural forces, There aren't that there aren't mir miracles that can happen. And as soon as I let go of that, things, you know, things very quickly started to happen for me that, uh, that all reinforced um, that uh, that I was holding my own self back. Not not that what I had learned didn't contain many truths. It wasn't like sure, your whole absolutely. life is a lie. It was yeah. like all this work you put into studying logic and reason and reality and science and econ and the valid parts of economics, for example, or finance. Like these were all valid, but, but when you also carried this notion that that's all there was and that there was nothing more you were missing everything more mm. and there's and there was so much more um and so that that was really the uh, kind of this liberation and, and kind of a, a personal testimony to myself to say not just for myself but for others i, I want to help people see that lies are prisons lies are chains that hold you back and and you don't have to replace every lie with a, a complete truth that is as explanatory as the lie itself. You just have to let go of the lie and be prepared to slowly discover what truths exist exist around it. But just let go of the let go of the lie that holds you that imprisons you. And uh, and I was able to do that for myself, and I hope to do it for many other people too. So, Tom, we're on the for the audience' sake, um, on the scale from you know no belief in God to, to kind of where you are now. Where would you put yourself on that scale? Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, so I, I went from militant atheist two years ago, right? That anyone who made, dared mention a belief in God, I would I would lecture them on how silly it was for them to believe in God. To now, if they wore a mask, then they'd probably get a double whammy today, right? <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, they they might, but I. It, you know, I had, I did, we didn't have mask mandates at the time, so I don't yeah. even know what, I don't even know what that would have been. But I, I gradually had softened to the point where I was very accepting of the fact that um, people have faith and they have beliefs, and it's not my job to tell them that they're wrong, but I don't have any. To, I've seen miracles, I've been treated so kindly and gently by these miraculous forces that it would actually be a slap in their face and a slap in my own face to deny them. And so I am, and it's kind of like, you know, I'm a few steps beyond that now. Like I, I, I'm here to confess that I see things now and I can, I'm able to see other things. Um, but I'm not ready to teach anybody anything yet. Right. Like I, I'm just, I'm, I'm at the earliest stages of learning because I've been released from, something that I had told myself that was mm. holding me in a particular place for so many years in my life. And now I'm able to, I'm unleashed and I'm able to explore. And so like, I'm, I'm smelling the flowers. I'm, I'm walking through the garden. I'm, I'm experiencing all these things with 
a new with a new clarity, with like a new sense enlightened to it. And I don't know exactly everything that it'll bring to me, but so far in a very short period of time, literally only a couple of weeks, maybe not even, it's been, it's been glorious. And so I'm just continuing to go down that path. It, it's fantastic. I, uh, I remember, uh, I guess it was last week I shared a, a scripture with you and you, you told me, um, wow, uh, had I read this, you know, a month ago or a year ago, it wouldn't have made any sense to me, but it seemed to have kind of brought you new meaning uh, when I shared that with you. So that was that was a special interaction with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I look forward uh, to, to continuing that journey with you. And uh, just for the audience sake, I've expressed my uh, delight and joy in almost a jealousy that you're going to experience um, this newfound faith with your cultural heritage uh, from being Jewish, something that as a, as a Gentile Christian, I, I just can't experience, but it's certainly part of my um, Christian faith. So I'm, I'm, I'm jealous for you for that. So that's awesome. It's time to play. Who wants to be a Satoshi millionaire? What is the consensus algorithm used for Bitcoin? A. Proof of work. B. Proof of stake. C. Proof of authority. D. Proof of burn. Um, Tover, if we could just switch gears here a little bit. That was fantastic. That was um, that was fantastic. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of your writings and kind of have you expound upon... Um, some of your thinking with uh, some of your writing just for the audience sake i i find y- you i love your writing and it's it's clear that you're artistic uh in the medium of writing so um the for the audience sake uh, te- uh check out tomer on medium tomer strolite on medium and but um i guess this is the last painting or the last uh, article you published was painting a portrait of bitcoin mm-hmm. which i i found intriguing um, right. you, you talk about Bitcoin's essence, as you wrote in the first part of the series, has to do with bind its, binding its uh, moral principles, principles that cannot that can be violated with mathematical ideals that cannot be violated. So when I read that, explain to me what what you think about the and you, you go on to describe what the moral principles are. But how right. can the moral principles in Bitcoin be violated and what would that look like? Okay, so w- when I talk about um, what I, what Bitcoin seems to be an invention of doing is it's trying to take human morality, which which is just to really oversimplify it, uh, is to say like, don't kill, don't steal, tell the truth, right? don't don't lie, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, right? Just to, to really simplify it, and and I point out those rules. First of all, you you can break them. You can kill. You can steal. You mm-hmm. can lie. And not only can you do those things, um, that's that's kind of the law of the jungle, right? Like in the jungle, you kill other things and eat them. You take other things when they're not look when they're not looking, uh, and you you hide or you deceive or you like you do all sorts of things um, to not get killed and eaten yourself or to lure others into getting killed or eaten that's a, l- a lure right that's a lie right um so it's like here's food no it's not it's actually your food uh and in human morality we don't do those things we trade with each other we're honest with each other and, and we need money in order to be able to have that human system of morality at any large scale right we can't just i can't 
make my essays and go around handing essays to people who then give me the shoes that they make. And then I take the shoes and trade them for banana and I get the banana and I trade it for a leather pouch that somebody else wants. Like barter doesn't, barter doesn't scale and it may never have even existed. There was mm -hmm. always this notion of money. And so, so we need money. Um, and the problem that we have in our civilization is that the idea of money has been corrupted under this fiat standard that we live in now where we have these totalitarian controlling centers in each country that decide how much money there will be. They, they, they get to print it. They get to keep it for themselves or hand it to people who are close to them. They get to set the price of money and they're, they're manipulating the economy and they're distorting the economy all the time. And, and th those, and there's no real work behind the money that they print. Um, and so we have this dishonest money and I, I go into more detail than I will in this essay, but the, the problem with the moral laws is, is they can be broken and, um, and the fiat money system is just a huge, a huge violation of the moral laws of man. Mm -hmm. right? more, more, it, we say you should not be able to steal, but uh, it, through inflation even, and through taxation, the government takes and they claim they claim that they're going to do good with it. So this is this is their justification for taking by force. This is their justification for inflating the money supply. Um, but Bitcoin is a system in which nobody can take. Not you know only you can only surrender what you want to voluntarily surrender, and nobody can inflate. Um, the, the, the laws are very set out. Nobody can inflate the supply. So Bitcoin, using the laws of physics and mathematics binds these moral concepts. These are just two examples. I give several others in my other, mm -hmm. in my article, but they, it binds these moral laws to everyone who chooses Bitcoin. If you choose Bitcoin, your money can't be seized. If you choose Bitcoin, it can't be inflated away. And it not just, it can't be inflated away as long as some people, like it can't be inflated away because of the laws of math, because of one plus one equals two. How it does this is really complicated, and it's such a it's such a magnificent invention, discovery, gift, whatever you want to call it, um, that it can do this. And there's a lot of writing that I've done and that others have done to explain it. But just for list for a listener, this thing exists. It exists where the money supply can't be inflated. Where every state. The other thing in this article that I found beautiful in my vision, every single thing in Bitcoin is true. There's yes. no lies. It yeah. doesn't every, every it, Bitcoin is this. You've heard of the blockchain, which is this giant database. It just keeps growing. It's not giant. It's reasonably sized, but it just keeps growing and growing. And it's a history of every transaction in Bitcoin and all this proof of work that's gone into creating all the new Bitcoins. Everything's proven. Every transaction is a mathematically proven statement to be true that the person who owned those coins through owner through knowledge of an unguessable number agreed to send them to wherever it was then sent to every single transaction. There's not one transaction that's a fraud in the whole of Bitcoin. And every transaction that ever happened is in this blockchain. There's not one single block of transactions, which releases new coins that doesn't prove that work was put into it. Not, no, none were created without work. They were all created with work. And of course you trade your work for money. So it's only fair by the laws of human morality that that money took work to create. It wasn't just summoned into existence by some bureaucrat who then who then takes your work and gives you something that took no work in exchange for it. That's not fair. That's the violation of the law of morality. And so that Bitcoin is this structure, being, entity, whatever it is, right, of only truth. 
and I, and I paint this picture of everything about it is true. And I paint this picture then that it's surrounded by all these people who've come to admire mm-hmm. this, this thing of this tower of truth, this tree of truth, um, which is, which is so beautiful because people have never seen anything like it before. All they get when they turn on the TV is lies, lies, lies. And here's this thing that's truth. And you can actually go, the beauty of Bitcoin is there's a, there's a, there's a thing in it, which I refer to as a rite of passage in the, um, in that, in that essay called running a full node, which, which mm-hmm. verifies the truth of every statement from the genesis of Bitcoin, the genesis block uh, and the genesis transaction. It verifies the truth of every single statement that's ever been there. And it takes, it takes like a couple of weeks for some computers or a day mm-hmm. and a half or really fast computers to do it. But you personally verify the truth of every single statement. And then, so it's, you're not taking anybody's word for it. You have seen the truth for yourself. You have done all the mathematical calculations. You've done everything to see that everything in this thing is true. And now you're caught up to the present and everything else that happens, you continue to verify. And I said, that's a really beautiful thing. And so it's no wonder that people are gathering around it in masses to experience and witness this, this incredible invention, this incredible thing that exists in the world right now that just keep, and it's in motion. It doesn't stop. It's not just, oh, here's a true statement. It's like, it keeps adding truth to it all the time. And you can, if you own some Bitcoin, you can make more true statements, like by sending them to somebody else. But if you don't own any Bitcoin, you can't send any Bitcoin to anybody else. And you can't conjure any up out of, out of nowhere. This is the difference between the dollar where you have some and you, you can spend it, but somebody who has none who's uh, in the right bureaucratic position can conjure some up into existence. And it's now indistinguishable from your money that you work for. Mm-hmm. They've got money that they didn't work for. And it's the same thing. Um, and so their lie or their lack of effort is equivalent to your effort. And that's the deception and uh, immorality in the current money system that is that Bitcoin eliminates using physics and math. You uh, opened the door to another truth of Bitcoin yesterday when um, we opened a lightning node together and we went into the mempool. I'd never seen that before. Right. So that, that was a special, that was, that was very cool, actually. Um, so I appreciate mm-hmm. that. I guess the, um, do you, you know, a common saying within the Bitcoin circles is uh, Bitcoin fixes this. Yeah. Do you do you think and and from my mind I'm coming more from the the morality because I I honestly do believe that Bitcoin's going to fix a lot of things, um, but from a moral perspective, um, do you think Bitcoin fixes that? Uh, well, what what what? It depends. You you just said that, and so I, I can I yeah can I left it open. To me I, I, yeah, I left it open just for that reason. Yeah, I I, th- I think that the most important Bitcoin fixes a lot of things. I think the most important thing it fixes is it makes people aware that justice can't exist in the world again. Oh, nice. And okay. and um, and and so it's worth now you can make a choice to win in the pursuit of justice. It wasn't like I can have integrity and be a loser and taken advantage of, or I can take advantage of other people and be a winner. No, there's a better path. Like there's a hype. There's a high road now i can take the righteous path and be a winner and nobody can violate my rights and that's a great insight yeah it and it changes people like there's another saying which is bitcoin changes you for the better right that's implied people say bitcoin changes you but i've I've written articles about how bitcoin changes okay i've written this series called who are the bitcoiners and it's all about how bitcoiners have integrity Mm-hmm. Uh, Bitcoiners have those things that money cannot buy, like intelligence and friendship and 
amongst other things, um, and that there are heroes in Bitcoin. Bitcoin encourages and rewards people to be behave heroically. Uh, and and we're, we're lacking all of those things so much in our civilization today. We don't have heroes. We have these, we have celebrities yes. or icons yeah. who are f always falling. They show no virtuous characteristics. They're just, their whole job is to stand up and read something that somebody else wrote in, yeah. in many senses, right? Like they're, they're not even creators. They're puppets of, of other people. So it's no, it's no surprise that they're behaving like puppets to other uh, solutions. But my, my goal isn't to dismiss them. It's just to say like, we, we, we lack integrity in our society. Our politicians don't tell us the truth. Even our teachers aren't aren't permitted to tell us the truth. Our doctors aren't permitted to tell us the truth in many cases. Like that's really terrible, right? And Bitcoin says you will only. I'm a machine of pure truth. How's that's that right? For, yeah. How's that for starters, right? Like no lies will be tolerated by anyone anywhere. And it's amazing. Again, if you dig into the engineering behind it, how how this truth machine exists, but. We don't have time for that. Uh, so, so people who spend time in Bitcoin become transformed, and they learn about personal responsibility. And so, it's not just it's not just hey, look, there's a bunch of nerds who made a whole bunch of money. That's how outsiders often see it. But there's a bunch of nerds who stopped being loser nerds who started to take care of their body, who started to take care of their mind, who started to understand morality and want to bring about a moral civilization, and they're ready to take on immoral institutions. Mm -hmm. This is more than just some nerd sitting in a computer making some making some money, um, fiat money. It's like, you know, they're abandoning the fiat money regime. They many of these people are probably really smart and could dedicate you know could get a career in finance. But instead they're dedicating their time and their energy to something that they really, really believe is moral. Yeah. Jack Jack Mahlers comes to mind. I mean he's a young guy that probably could be doing exactly that doing uh another fintech job in silicon valley or working in new york or something like that um just to circle back i i um i left that question open because um i get the sense on bitcoin bitcoin twitter that bitcoin fixes everything and i fundamentally believe that it will fix a lot of things but there are definitely moral shortcomings you know hate murder you know those yep. those things that are within the core of man that Bitcoin is not going to fix. It can certainly kind of, kind of shine a light in those areas, but it's not going to mm -hmm. fix. Um, and yeah. I, and I, you know, you, you and I know each other well enough now to, and you, you understand my worldview in that perspective. Um, yeah. But uh, no doubt, uh, Bitcoin is a truthful thing, and it does. It's going to do a lot of, of wonderful things. Yeah. Um, what I what I would say on on that is it's not Bitcoin by itself. It's Bitcoin accompanies mankind, humanity, on on a journey, and um, and Bitcoin isn't the it isn't the thing that's in the driver's seat, right? Like every person has to choose it for himself. Every mm -hmm. and, and you know, and if you choose Bitcoin and then you do something foolish with it or something immoral with it, you're going to get wrecked. That's like, so Bitcoin is like this teacher that teaches you. Yes. I, I have one article called Bitcoin is a test. And I just think it's kind of, it's this beautiful testing mechanism that tests all of these aspects of your character so that you can find the way to the moral high ground. And so it's not Bitcoin that, like we fix ourselves, right? Uh, but but we have a tool that helps us in, in Bitcoin, and it guides us towards other things. Um, and it, you know, in my case, well, that's a perfect segue. Yeah, that's a perfect segue. That was the next article. Um, the and it's almost in a, a poem format, but 
uh, let me, I'm going to read four of your lines here. And if you could comment like um, how it tested each one of these characteristics. So it tests your character, it tests your honesty, it tests your integrity, and it tests your courage. Right. Um, so let, let's go from the beginning. What was the first one? It tests character. Your character. You know, I, I, so <laughs> Bitcoiners don't tolerate a lack of integrity in a person, right? Um, and, and why? Because we're protecting and preserving the functioning of this machine of, in, of integrity. And so I, I have a whole article written about character called Bitcoiners are not toxic. They have integrity. Yeah. And, and in, but in a, in a sh to, tr to really try to condense it, it's lots of people come to Bitcoin. They don't understand it well. They want to suggest changes. They want to make improvements, including the richest man in the world earlier this year, Elon Musk, mm -hmm. came to mm -hmm. it and he suggested changes. And he enriched all the Bitcoiners by buying a whole bunch of Bitcoin and then offered a trade. He said, um, I want you to make changes to Bitcoin, essentially. And and Bitcoiners overwhelmingly said no, even though they knew that he might sell his Bitcoin and that would impact the price. And so Bitcoiners were prepared to take a personal hit in order to say no. And, and this was deemed by the outsiders as, well, Bitcoiners are toxic. Why don't you just compromise? Why don't you just give in? You know, he asked nicely, or he's going to take his money away. You know, he, this iron fist in a velvet glove. And we said, go take it away. Like we're not, we're not prepared to sacrifice the integrity of Bitcoin one inch, because if we do, then the whole thing will have ultimately fall apart. And we're, and we're in this for building a system of integrity, not for getting rich. And that's what, and that's why I say, so that's how it tests your character. And what you saw in that test was, Bitcoin tested lots and lots of people's characters, and there were and there were like uh, divisions. There were people saying, "Stop being so mean to Elon Musk. Just give in. Just accept." You know, and and Bitcoiners with integrity said, "No, you know, he's welcome to come in and use the system as it is, mm -hmm. which with, with its sound engineering principles, or he's welcome to leave." But he's not, but we're not going to change. It's interesting because that's uh, for the audience' sake. I did not give Tomer the the articles I was going to ask him about, but that's the last article I was going to ask you about. Um, the when I first started uh, kind of writing on Twitter and and Medium and all that, um, I kept my anonymity because I felt you know, and I didn't really have much to say, but I I wanted to be anonymous uh, because I felt like there was a toxicity, and I I agree with the. Um, I call it the proof of defense in one of my articles, and I totally agree with the proof of defense of Twitter, of, of Bitcoin, uh, and, and, and in the case that you um, used with Elon. Um, but do you think that there's do you think that there's an unpure toxicity around the proof of defense toxicity? Mm -hmm. um, People just kind of shooting off just to shoot off or because I, that. Right. Listen, different people, people, people have moods uh, and people get fed up and all sorts of things happen. So I, I'm not defending every comment of every Bitcoin or whoever said anything sure, to anybody yeah. I, on, on the internet. But, but what, what I, when I talk about Bitcoin testing your character, it really is, you know, it, it, there, there's another one of these sayings that I, I, in a couple of ways, people say, I came for the riches or I came for the gains. I stayed for the revolution. Yeah. That's, that's an example of how you know, people come to this thing thinking, oh, I can get rich quick or maybe I can make a buck by speculating. And then they, they explore it and they say, you know what? I, I want to fight for freedom. And what a difference, right? Like, so you talk about a test of character and, and it offers that test of character 
essentially to everybody who comes to it. And many people say, no, I'm here for the gains. And it looks like there's gains with a lot of these altcoins. And I'm going to, and I think I can trick some people into buying some or move in and out of them faster than other people. And it's, it's a, that's a shell game. If ever there was, there was one. And once you get yourself caught up in that, you're just, you know, you're, you may come out ahead, but you'll probably come out behind because there's, there's smarter people than you playing this tricking tricking you into thinking that you understand how the shell game works but you're really going to be a victim of them bitcoin sits outside that system so that's how bitcoin tests your character and uh, and it does so every day to a lesser extent right i have to when i see someone coming in and promoting uh some alternative thing i have a choice i can tell them that they're a scammer or a fool or i can try to politely say, why are you, I, I, I can, I can, I have a spectrum of choices, right? Sure. Um, and in some cases I will shut somebody down or just block them from my life. If I, if I think they're beyond my ability to help them out. But in other cases, I've been much more patient in answering things lately and realizing that some people really are just lost and looking for answers and it goes a long way. In okay. I mean, and, and that's probably the, the point that I'm getting at is that that's kind of the, for me, that's a non-toxic response. Uh, a toxic response would be impatiently, automatically assuming the worst. Unless the patient, unless the patient, I go back to my career. Unless the person has a history demonstrating that right. um, they're malicious, then you should treat them with some sort of respect. Um, yeah. Okay, I, I, we're in agreement. I think that we're splitting hairs. Um, right. And I. But I, I totally agree. There, there needs to, absolutely needs to be proof of defense of, of of Bitcoin, and I think that ties into honesty. I mean, we've talked about that then enough, enough and integrity and the courage thing. So, how does it test your courage? Uh, you know, Bitcoiners are called criminals, drug dealers, terrorists, mm. and they're not by, and it's no longer just by you know. Um, some enemies of Bitcoin who are nobodies. It's like, these are labels that people in very powerful positions in the world, people with the power to imprison you um, and and order your arrest are making those accusations. So if you come out and say, I'm in favor of Bitcoin, I believe in Bitcoin over the current system to the people who are the influencers in the current system, that takes courage. Yeah, like there's or stupidity, right? Yeah, but, yeah, like, yeah. No, no, that's know, that, that's true. I mean, there it is an extreme answer. Yeah, for sure. Right, and but it takes courage in a couple of other ways in, that are more subtle. Because I don't want everyone to think you're, you know, you're you're getting into Bitcoin. This is you. You have to make that that particular kind of declaration. Um, you won't understand Bitcoin fully. And so there's an element of faith here, but which also requires some element of courage, right? Like you have to, you have to take as given some of the things that you can't understand and you have to take risk. Everything about Bitcoin involves risk. You have to, um, you, you can do a lot of study and the longer you study, the, the more you miss the opportunity to get That's more right. Bitcoin at an early yeah. day, but, but you can study this and, and you can try to understand it. And, uh, and ultimately, no matter what, you cannot avoid risk in this world. And that's one of the lessons that Bitcoin teaches you. Uh, but it says, rather than run away from risk or hide from it, take calculated risks. And calculated risks, I think, equate to the concept of courage, right? Like, take, you know, you can, you can, lose, sure. you can't, you can be hurt, but you also can't avoid taking risks in life you can't avoid making decisions so make smart informed decisions and then have the conviction to stand behind them i think that's what courage is yeah and i think for from an 
uh, as an entrepreneur and as you as you are an entrepreneur, have an entrepreneurial background, I think taking calculated risks is something that we understand. It's in our blood. I think a lot of people that have never had to take those risks and, and measure, you know, the risk uh, that could be a little a little scary and daunting. Well, you know, one thing I say about this to everybody is you have, you have, you forget, you don't remember now, but when you first learned to walk, you first had to learn how to stand up and that was a risk yeah. because yeah. you could fall down. And you know what? The first time you tried to stand up, you did fall down. Yeah. And the first time you tried to walk, you did fall down and you did a face plant and you hurt yourself, but you got up and you did it again. So like if you're getting, if you're going to, and the same thing's going to be true, you're going to get into Bitcoin, you're going to buy a bunch, you're going to somehow get tricked by some buddy out there yep. to yep. losing some small percentage of it or some par- portion of it you're going to try to follow everybody's every bitcoiner's advice as to how to keep it safe but you may end up learning a lesson that's a little bit of a painful lesson yeah but yeah. that lesson isn't quit the lesson isn't give up the lesson is learn from your mistakes and mm-hmm. mar- and march and march on and we all do it you don't get to be a functioning human being who, who can talk and read and walk without having made lots of mistakes that's yeah that's well said yeah very well said i think that you know the your your use of the word faith with bitcoin i I wrote about that in one of my medium articles the people of crypto twitter and that that's kind of you know the the logic and the framework that i used for um you know those who come to bitcoin have to use the same logical framework that a christian uses and um so that that's interesting that you said that i your your one article sound money and um let's see i have it art sound money money and sound art i yeah it's a fan that's a great i love it so um if if no one has read this uh give it a it's on medium sound money and just look under tomer's name but uh first of all the piece of work the the work of art even in two-dimensional it's it's fascinating and beautiful but um talk us through this 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 piece because it's it's a great piece Uh, so there's this artist who go who's pseudonymous we don't know his real name uh he goes by the name of fractal encrypt um and he makes these beautiful one-off sculptures um which which up until this particular one that i wrote about he had been making out of laser cut wood where he cuts the wood into concentric layered circles and etches beautiful stuff and this is the one michael sailor's got one that he bought Michael Saylor bought one yeah, yeah. Okay. There's, a, there's a number of prominent people who bought them and um and and they're sold through auction and they're sold for bitcoin the, the artist accepts bitcoin rather than dirty fiat lies uh, he accepts honest money and uh and and this comes from deep within him he's another person who spent a lot of time studying bitcoin and really appreciates the elegance and integrity of the whole system and that, that's what he tries to concretize in creating these sculptures the perfect fitness of everything that there's having cycles and the patterns and he actually concretely has these sections in it which keep getting to be half the size of yeah, one another and, all and the video things. that you put in there is it's fascinating yeah, yeah. so th- there's tremendous attention to detail and and um and at the at this bitcoin conference in miami that happened earlier in 20 this year in 2021 he created a new one he was he says he's only going to create 10 in his life all all the previous mm. ones had been made out of wood and he developed a technique to make it out of mirror 
Um, and so he was laser cutting mirrors. He apparently had to have a hold. He had to develop the technique because nobody had developed it before for how to carve the mirror or to put on the backing of the mirror so that the letters that you carved out mm -hmm. showed up with high resolution. Mm -hmm. It had to be black. It couldn't be clear. It couldn't be this, that, the other. And so he now has, he has created this concretization of what a Bitcoin full node is, which we discussed mm -hmm. earlier here. It's a thing that verifies all the truth mm -hmm. and everything. That's a mirror. And, and the, what, what I found so moving about that, and I've referred to Bitcoin as a mirror in a number of different ways, even like when I talk about it as a test, it, you look into it and you can see your character in it and you can see your courage in it. And so I, I in the article, I envisioned what this was on display at this trade show, what would different people see in it? And what would a Bitcoiner, a person who's learned how to have integrity and intellectual st strength and verify things, what would they see when they look into this beautiful sculpture and how would they feel? um seeing something of this integrity and seeing their face reflected in it uh, as part of it and uh, so i really want to see this <laughs> it's, uh, it's in taiwan right now um, but I've, i have been in touch with the person who bought it and uh, it's one of my dreams to go and see this someday and and what would what would someone who participates in all, all of these scams in the crypto space see see in it right like they 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 see frustration when they look into this mirror because they support something that isn't this thing and they they would see their face all fractured and distorted by it and they would ask the artist it's funny i wrote this story and then i i because I, I knew in my heart what would happen i said they would ask the artist can you recreate one for my alternative project and the artist would say no what am i supposed to make it out of garbage and mm -hmm. and things that don't fit together and i and i wrote it and i shared it with the artist and he said were you there this is exactly what happened i wasn't there but you know one, one can one can imagine what happened to people what happens to people and then to people who have no knowledge or are ignorant of Bitcoin and they, they would just look at this thing and they would see nothing. Um, they, they, I mean, they, they would see a blank expression reflected, mm -hmm. not all that accurately in something, but the, the reverence and the appreciation that a real Bitcoiner would have for looking at the beauty of this thing and then being able to either concentrate on their face within it or just see their face um, out of focus reflected in it in the background is kind of this this beautiful thing and i also talked about how there were all these temptations for artists to participate in these things called nfts which aren't really giving any physical art to anybody they lack scarcity there's all these platforms in the middle there are all these violations of the principles of of both bitcoin and human morality and uh, and so all these things exist at the periphery but this thing is a really tr true thing do you think that so do you think that a, a bitcoiner living true to the faith of bitcoin would only create this type of work or if a bitcoiner does uh you know my oldest daughter is an animator and you know so would if she was a bitcoiner would you expect her belief in bitcoin to inform her animation and likewise for the street artist i mean is he not going to do street art anymore if he's a bitcoiner um, no, I, I'm not saying people shouldn't do other types of art. I, mean, like, I, I think what, what this particular sculpture represents, to like the artist created it inspired by the beauty, the truth, the engineering of Bitcoin. He couldn't yeah, okay. create it. He couldn't get that inspiration from any one of these other. He couldn't create a. He couldn't create a monument like that to the U.S. dollar. Right? Yeah, if very good. To, okay. If you yeah. asked him to create something to the U.S. dollar, it would look ugly. It would be filled with deception and lies. Like that's how he would concretize. I presume this notion of what the dollar stands for now it stands for some people stealing from others without doing any work and any of these altcoin projects he would that's what he would create he only creates bitcoin infused art uh, yeah that's interesting <laughs> as you were saying that just thinking about 
any movie that I could think of that has to deal with money, it's usually about, you know, a bank heist, uh, you know, a casino robbery, oil, you know, trying to uh, a war fought over oil or something like that. That very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so yeah. That, that's what I would just say. I, I think artists can artists can pro- artists project what they're value judgment is of the world. And, and when this artist looks right. at Bitcoin, he sees, he sees beauty and he is able to create something absolutely beautiful out of it. And m- many of these NFTs, like they're really, I don't want to say they're ugly, but I don't know what else to say about them. There's, there's scribbles that are, that are quickly, um, spun off because there's a, there's a willing foolish buyer and let's, let's get this foolish buyer out of the store and create another one for the next foolish buyer who's about to come in. No, this thing was created with integrity for one buyer. And it took however long it took. And he was, you know, he wasn't able to put it on display for the whole show because he was still working on it. Mm-hmm. He didn't rush off a fin- an unfinished, you know, thing. he waited until he could make it perfect. And even if that cost him a few potential bidders, it doesn't matter because the integrity of what he was creating was paramount to anything else. And there, again, you have it. Bitcoiners have integrity. Uh, at Very good. Costs. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, um, Tomer, thanks for your time. I, I have a couple more questions and um, just to kind of bring things to a close. But, you know, looking into the future, what what kind of future do you see with Bitcoin? And um, I kind of go back and forth in my own head with this next question. But do you think there will be a complete adoption of Bitcoin or do you think that we will have kind of two worlds of you know, one remains on a on a fiat standard of sorts, and one is on a, a Bitcoin standard. Okay. So this is going to be a surprising answer to you. I hope that there isn't a worldwide adoption of Bitcoin. Mm. I, I hope that we are always in a position where every single person has to make the choice to adopt Bitcoin. They have to evaluate it and they have to choose it. Rather, they're born into a world where it's not a choice anymore because it's character building to choose it, and it shows it it. it takes you down a path of saying there's something right and there's an alternative to that which is right. And I can only choose what's right if I actually have a choice, an alternative that's wrong. And that makes me a better person. Do you think so then do you think that there will be a new elite, a new moral elite that chooses Bitcoin? Yes. That becomes the new elite. I, I, I don't like the word elite and you know we refer to ourselves as plebs, as ordinary people, but I, I do think that there will be a moral class of people who have, have conviction in and belief in human morality and in part enforce it through their decisions around the wealth that they control through Bitcoin. I think, I think Bitcoin, Bitcoiners aren't, you know, the early days of Bitcoin, there were all these memes about buying Lamborghinis and stuff like that. Take a look now, like nobody's interested in buying a Lamborghini and blowing their money. They're yeah. interested in, in regenerative farming and building citadels yeah. where people's rights can be respected and avoiding all these lies. Like it, things have really changed and that that's going to be the nature of many. Again, not all, like a Bitcoiner still has a choice to be a crook. A Bitcoiner still has a choice to, viol- to attempt to violate moral laws they can't do it on the system so that's why they create alternative coins and other and other corrupt systems but yeah they can you know they can hide they can hide within just like just like bad men can hide within good institutions of any kind uh, you know there's nothing preventing anybody from uh from being evil and owning bitcoin bitcoin allows everybody bitcoin is the most inclusive institution in the world nobody can be banned from using it, it by again the laws of mathematics so bad people so bad people will use bitcoin because you know they absolutely will bitcoin doesn't prevent 
the badness of people from existing, but it encourages and enforces the more the moral laws and so it's it's hard I, I do think we'll have a lot fewer people choose to be evil because it's so much harder to be evil and under a bitcoin stand it's so much harder to be profitable from evil when all your lies are basically all your bluffs are called on you that's so interesting it, yeah it gets really hard and I, and it'll make all of these professions that are professions of liars go away is another prediction that i have like economists um <laughs> or at least the keynesian economists I, I think it'll ultimately make them go away because there just won't be any profit in wasting your energy trying to fool people with those types of lies because it won't be enforceable so um sorry i'm, go I'm going on too long answering your no question. you're fine you're fine um so tomer where where can where's the best place for people to connect with you and um yeah where's the best place for people to connect with you Follow me on Twitter is the easiest thing. I'm almost always on Twitter. So at Tomer Strolight on Twitter, my articles, almost all of them are posted directly on Medium, tomerstrolight.medium.com. I have a few that aren't. I have links to them. There's one on Swan Bitcoin, which is a, a, the 26th special article in um, the Why Bitcoin series, which is longer than three minutes. So that's on Swan Bitcoin. It's called Why Bitcoin Will End the Worst Heist in History. I think something to that effect. You can Google that. And I have I have uh, this fiction story called Satoshi and Me that's on a magazine called uh, Citadel 21. But mm -hmm. almost everything else I've published, on, you know, there's my thought, daily thoughts on Twitter and my longer thoughts on Medium. And they're good thoughts. I, I, I read them. <laughs> <laughs> and I also have a podcast, uh, which is which is a very radical kind of podcast. It's called For the Love of Bitcoin, but it really is about the political struggles and the importance of maintaining privacy and trying to run self-sovereign software. Uh, so for you can look up For the Love of Bitcoin. I have a couple of co-hosts on it. And uh, a lot of people really enjoy it. It's not a lot of people. We have a small audience, but the people who enjoy it really enjoy it. You've got to start somewhere. And I guess one one final question, I, uh, you know, having met you personally several times or uh, via Zoom several times, I cannot connect your Twitter and Medium profile picture. What? Who is that? <laughs> oh, that was me. So back when I was running that company, um, we had one business inside of it that was the most fun company I've ever worked in in my life. And even up to and even including the summer camp, except for the fact that I met my wife at, at the summer camp. And, and this company was called Olive Media, uh, O-L-I-V-E. And you were chairman yeah. of that chairman I, of that I company. was chairman yeah. of that company. Yeah. It, it, we really, it sounded like A-L-L space O-F uh, uh, was Olive Media. And, and we were in Canada and we had we'd come up early on with this idea that through geo-targeting of advertisements, we could buy all of the ad impressions for very popular American sites or European sites and show ads to Canadians when they visited them from Canadian agencies. So we basically were a broker of inventory. We bought inventory and we resold it. And it was a great fun bit. We were selling lots and lots of advertising. And so we had a very fun workforce. And our client base was all the ad agencies in the country that were buying internet media, which was a very small group of people at the time. It was like, you know, there were all, there's only like 12 big ad agencies with big budgets and, um, and they had like a few hundred employees. And so our whole marketing budget was just one event a year. We threw the biggest party in the media industry and we put all of our money into it. It was like a six figure party and every, and for some strange reason, it, it became a costume party. 
I can't remember exactly. The first one, the first one we ever threw was meant to be like a, a prom and people dressed up as a prom. And, and so it just became, and the, uh, the very last one that I attended that was while I was still there where, where the business was still roaring was this Western theme. Okay. We had, had like a cowboy. And so I'm just, so I, for the first time in my life, grew a beard for that. Okay. Two, I could, now I can grow a beard in a few days, but back then, like I, I, I took me, I, it took me a month to grow the facial hair you see on me in that, in that picture. And so, and I dressed up like a cowboy with a hat and these dark spectacles and the, the, Bowl. It's a great photo. I didn't know that was you. It's, it's my favorite. Yeah, it's my favorite yeah. photo of me that's ever taken. And in the zoomed out picture, there's a whole crowd around me, and uh, and so I really love that picture, and I love it in black and white. And so that's my avatar on that's social fantastic. media yeah. with laser eyes because Bitcoiners also have laser eyes. That's fantastic. Well, thanks, Tomer. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you would leave a review, that would be fantastic as well. Peace. A little more about our Satoshi Millionaire game. The plan is to have a series of questions spread over a number of shows. At the conclusion of the series of questions, there will be an opportunity to DM the Twitter handle at Mission21M with the answers. The first person to DM with the correct answers will be the recipient of the 1 million Satoshis. The only way to receive them is via a Lightning Wallet, so make sure you have one that is set up. I hope you have fun playing. Thanks. Thanks.